0: podcast one production
1: it's may 2015 i've been invited to give a talk to the startup community in auckland new zealand tell them what's coming help them to be prepared now by this point i've been around the world a few times with the world bank i've seen how mobile money transformed kenya but largely failed to transform rwanda and in rwanda it's because commercial interests outweighed national interests I've already been to the G20 in Brisbane, the first global blockchain forum. I'm going to be invited to participate in the G20 meeting in Antalya in about a month. I'm getting this real sense of where money is going. And I reckon in Auckland, I've been given a great opportunity to share what I've been seeing. And I want to frame what I've been seeing as a a once-in-a-generation opportunity for New Zealand. Here's what I said. need to be something as exotic as Bitcoin. IBM has very recently announced that it's doing some work in progress with the US Federal Reserve to create a US dollar denominated digital currency. And while Bitcoin has a role to play in On the Planet of the Apps, most national currencies will be reborn as digital currencies over the next several years. This is an area where New Zealand could leapfrog other nations, particularly other nations in this corner of Asia, by leading the way into a digital currency version of the New Zealand dollar. A digital New Zealand dollar would be the spark that launches a thousand apps. We'd see apps talking to other apps. We'd see apps analyzing the flow of digital currency through a smartphone and then through to a business and feed that information back to the business owner to improve their business. Once we get digital currency on our smartphones, we can start to build value chains. We can connect app to app to app, and we can do that to build things beyond anything we've yet imagined everything that produced an explosive transformation and innovation in East Africa is available today to New Zealand. Digital currencies were coming. I could see that. Lots of people could see that. The gap between the smartphone and money was growing too wide. And I reckoned, hey, why not fill that gap with a digital Kiwi dollar? Make New Zealand the new digital reserve currency. Wouldn't that be a thing? I gave my talk, but I went further. I knew someone who knew someone who worked in the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, so I put it to them. What about it? What about a digital Kiwi dollar? What I heard back, well, their response was very telling. The folks at the Reserve Bank couldn't see the need for a digital currency. After all, they replied, we have credit cards. A few months back, I had no idea if I'd do a second series of cryptonomics. But then, in 10 explosive days in June, the second series wrote itself, because a new story is unfolding. It's a different story from last year. The technology remains mostly the same, but the world, the world has moved along. I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to episode five of series two of Cryptonomics, a show dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, are transforming our entire world. Along the way, we've learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of finance, money, investing, and the economy. We've spoken to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We've learned how things work, why they work, and when they don't. Now, in Series 1, we covered enough of the basics to help you make your own investment decisions. You have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency and ask, is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? You've learned the questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you'd want to receive. But cryptocurrencies are really only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain is just over a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established institutions, including central banking. Plus, it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. And over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. That's why we've called this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall and rise again in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change rolling over banks, retailers, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrency, and some of that hype, it's justified. It's a new way of doing business, and already it's forcing governments and central bankers to make way for it. In a moment, we'll take a look at what happened because New Zealand missed their moment, their golden opportunity to become the global digital reserve currency. Okay, let's go really big picture for a moment. When two nations trade goods and services, they have to pay one another, which means they have to agree to terms of payment, including the currency that's going to be used for the transaction. So, for example, if you're buying oil from Saudi Arabia... They have to be paid in U.S. dollars. The Saudis don't accept anything else. Now, that's broadly true internationally. Two nations will tend to trade with one another in U.S. dollars unless there's a pre-existing agreement that they'll use some other currency. Now, this is part of the power that's held by the FATF, the nuclear option that we talked about back in episode two. If you end up on the naughty list, on the banned list by the FATF, you're effectively cut out of the market for U.S. dollars. You can't get them, so you can't pay anyone in them, which means, among other things, no Saudi oil, no American goods or services, no iPhones, no Disney blockbusters, no Boeing passenger jets, because all of those are purchased in U.S. dollars. Now, it might not look that way to a resident of a country, because a resident of a country is always going to pay for things in their local currency, but when accounts are settled, that's done in U.S. dollars. No greenbacks, no deal. And that means most of the nations of the world hold on to a big stash of U.S. dollars. And that's normally managed by a nation's central bank in order to keep international trade finance ticking over smoothly. The Chinese, for example, hold on to well over a trillion dollars. The EU holds a bunch, as does Australia, New Zealand, and pretty much every other trading nation. They all hold U.S. dollars. They hold them in reserve for when they're needed to settle accounts. And that's the basic idea behind a reserve currency. Now, the U.S. dollar wasn't always the global reserve currency. Before the First World War, the British pound sterling functioned as the global reserve currency built on the immense resources and reach of the British Empire. So if you wanted to trade with Britain, and it was really the first modern trading empire, you had to do that in British pounds. But the First World War it nearly bankrupted Britain, and whatever was left was spent defending the empire from the Nazis in the Second World War. Long before the end of the Second World War, Britain was broke. So in July 1944, just three weeks after the Normandy landings, the best economic minds of the Allies began to craft a post-war economic order, one which would no longer have Britain at its center. And this meeting is named after the location in the U.S. state of New Hampshire where it was held, Bretton Woods. Out of that meeting came a broad agreement that the U.S. dollar would be pegged to gold, stored in Fort Knox, of course, and pegged at $35 to the ounce. And more significantly, the U.S. dollar would become the world's reserve currencies. The great trading debts between nations would now be settled in New York in U.S. dollars. So it's important to note that reserve currency status is something that can be won or lost by nations. Now, in 1971, President Nixon rolled back a key part of the Bretton Woods Agreement, taking the U.S. off the gold standard. This allowed the U.S. dollar to float relative to other currencies, and it also allowed the gold price to float. Now, as of September 2019, the price of gold sat at around $1,500 U.S. dollars. That's a 42-fold increase in about 50 years. Not extraordinary growth by any means. You probably would have done better buying shares in Intel. But it's enough to convince gold bugs that currencies like the U.S. dollar aren't really worth the paper they're printed on. And that feeling has largely carried over into Bitcoin, which, like gold, is in limited supply, although in Bitcoin's case, this limitation is mathematical rather than physical. But the gold bugs point back to that moment in 1971 as the moment the U.S. dollar lost its right to be the world's reserve currency. Now, here we are, it's half a century later, still going strong, or, well, it was going strong, because all of that has suddenly changed. Back in June, when Facebook dropped its Libra white paper, the world got a look at a digital currency that could quite credibly function as a reserve currency. Not in the sense that nations would need to hold billions or trillions of Libra but in the sense that Libra could easily become the way that 2 billion Facebook users settle their accounts with one another, with local businesses, even with businesses or individuals in other countries. You don't need billions of dollars for that. Kenya's proof of this. 60% of the money volume of the Kenyan economy moves through M-Pesa mobile money, but it's just in small amounts, just a few Kenyan shillings here and a few more there, but there's a lot of them because there's nearly 50 million Kenyans and most of them have M Pesa accounts. Tens of millions of small moves every day really adds up. So if Facebook gets Libra up and running, gets it integrated into, say, Facebook Messenger via their Calibra wallet, and well, then we get a future where Libra becomes the de facto reserve currency. But it's one where individuals are keeping it on hand to settle their accounts rather than governments keeping it on hand to settle theirs. So it's a bit different. But then old-style reserve currencies come from an era where it simply wasn't practicable for individuals to settle their accounts on a global scale. But, you know, we have the Internet. We have smartphones today. It's actually easy to do that. So some of this is just a moment whose time has come. You know, that brings me back to one of my favorite quotes. It's steam engines when it comes steam engine time, meaning you can't force the future, but when the future comes, you can't stop it either. And for digital currencies, this is their moment. Now, I tried four years ago back in Auckland. I tried to force the future. I tried to talk the Kiwis into something they weren't ready for and didn't understand. But post Libra, Everyone understands. And that means everyone sees the same opportunity Facebook is working so hard to seize to become the next reserve currency, the digital reserve currency. And it's a game the whole family can play. For example,
2: Binance announced its plans to initiate an open blockchain project called Venus, an initiative to develop localized stable coins and digital assets pegged to fiat currencies across the globe. Binance is looking to create new alliances and partnerships with governments, corporations, technology companies, and other cryptocurrency companies and projects involved in the larger blockchain ecosystem to empower developed and developing countries to spur new currencies.
1: Binance are one of the bigger cryptocurrency exchanges. On a recent day, they handled about a half a billion dollars in transactions. They see the same opportunity Facebook sees, but rather than joining the Libra Alliance... They want to create their own digital reserve currency because, let's face it, whoever creates that currency well, they end up in pole position for the 21st century economy. They will have insight into every digital transaction made by everyone using that currency, and eventually that'll be most everyone with a smartphone. That is insight beyond anything we could have even imagined just a few short months ago. But now, everyone knows that's coming. It's absolutely going to happen. And it's a big reason why so many people don't want the creator of the digital reserve currency to be Facebook, because no one trusts Facebook with that kind of data or that kind of power. But then, will anyone trust Binance? How many people have even heard of them? If finance is about trust, and it is because we rely on the managers of our money to be trustworthy in their care for our money... Well, it's easier to trust someone you know, and no one knows Binance, so that's not really likely. But then maybe it doesn't need to be a private company. Maybe a central bank is ready to take the plunge. Sweden's Reichsbank has been working on a digital version of their kroner, that's the Swedish currency, for a while. And the Swedes, they actually have decided they want a cashless economy. They see the digital kroner as the way to make that happen. Now, the Reichsbank haven't said when they'll launch their digital kroner, and it doesn't seem as though they'll want it to become a global reserve currency. It's just something for Sweden to help them with collecting tax. But then, that was before Libra, before everything changed. In a moment, we'll take a look at one central bank that's taking Libra very seriously, doing its best to steal some of Libra's lightning. Conference ...took place 75 years ago. And following on in its footsteps, every August in Jackson Hole, Wyoming... ...the world's leading central bankers get together to discuss policy and do some planning. This year, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney... ...who actually already has his hands full just dealing with Brexit... ...well, he floated a balloon. A global digital reserve currency. Here's what he said. The issue is, you don't just jump to something new overnight... Um, and the, uh, what we want in a multipolar world, I think we'd agree that we've got European engine, we've got the Chinese engine, we've got the US engine of this economy, multipolar world, you need a multipolar currency. The question is, how do you get there? And I laid out some ideas of how you would get there. Carney is putting the need for a digital reserve currency in terms that economists and central bankers can understand. Using the U.S. dollar isn't the great idea it once was, now that the U.S. isn't the only economic superpower. So Carney is suggesting the move to another reserve currency, one managed by the central banks and primarily for their benefit, offering the chance to do the same thing as before, settling accounts between nations, but in a new way. That's interesting, But that doesn't solve the problem of a smartphone user in Indonesia trying to trade with someone in the next village. Which is the problem that Libra and Binance Venus have set out to fix. And also Telegraph. Now, Telegraph is the secure messaging app. It has gone ahead with its own plans to launch the Gram, which is its own cryptocurrency, and it will be fully integrated with the Telegram app. The Telegram app has almost 300 million users. Now, that's not Facebook-sized numbers, but they're nothing to sneer at. So we have all of these commercial players coming out of the woodwork, all of them inspired by Libra to take the plunge, aiming to become the global digital reserve currency. But for all of them, including Facebook, it's an uphill battle. How much better would it be if a currency that's already in daily use goes digital? Now, that's the point that I failed to make to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. But it's a point that hasn't been lost on other nations. For the last four years, the PBOC, that's the People's Bank of China, which is the name of the Chinese central bank, they have been working quietly on their own digital currency. Now, here's what was reported by Bloomberg on the 12th of August, 2019.
2: The People's Bank of China is close to issuing its own cryptocurrency, according to a senior official. The bank's researchers have been working intensively since last year to develop systems, and the cryptocurrency is close to being out. Mu Changchun, Deputy Director of the PBOC's Payments Department, said at an event held at China Finance 40. Mu repeated the PBOC's intention that the digital currency will replace cash in circulation. The digital currency also supports the yuan's circulation and internationalization, he said. He didn't give specifics on the timing.
1: When the central bank of the world's second largest economy announces that they're all in on a digital yuan, one that they intend to replace the physical banknotes in circulation throughout China, and not just China, but beyond China, well... That's a game changer of a completely different order than Libra. And it's likely that that announcement was moved forward because of the Libra announcement. Central banks don't want to be disrupted by Facebook. And the only way they can compete is by creating their own digital reserve currencies. The Chinese have that kind of power, at least in China. They can mandate that every physical banknote in the Middle Kingdom is replaced by cryptocurrency. Every Chinese will trade from their smartphones, moving their digital yuan back and forth seamlessly. Of course, all of these movements leave entries in a blockchain because that's how cryptocurrencies work. And that blockchain will be the property of the People's Bank of China, which is an arm of the Chinese state. So every transaction of any kind whatsoever will be recorded and available for analysis by the Chinese government. That's the power of the blockchain. And it's not exactly the story we heard from the true believers in Series 1 of Cryptonomics who preached a gospel of crypto-libertarianism, that these pseudonymous transactions could free us from slavery to the state. It turns out... That's not actually true. In fact, if we're not careful, we're headed in exactly the opposite direction. But that's a bigger topic than we can explore here. So let's leave that parked for another episode of Cryptonomics because we have bigger fish to fry. The Chinese rush toward digital yuan can't be separated from the trade war that's raging between China and the United States. It's a war that's being fought across several fronts, including digital currencies. And this might be one of the reasons why Bank of England Governor Mark Carney floated the idea of an international digital reserve currency, both as a way to call a ceasefire in these money wars and as a way of undermining the efforts of the People's Bank of China to promote their digital yuan as an internationally tradable reserve currency. But that only makes sense if the U.S. has their own digital currency ready to go. And it was reported, all the way back in 2015, that the U.S. Federal Reserve was working with IBM on their own digital currency. But nothing's been heard about that effort in all of the years since. Now, after the Libra announcement, the Fed did promote their own next-generation payments project, something known as FedNow. FedNow is a real-time payment service. It's similar to the new payments platform developed for the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is the system that powers PayID. And it's the reason that those PayID payments are nearly instantaneous. The U.S. doesn't have real-time payments. It's one reason why credit cards are so big in the U.S., They're still using checks over there precisely because they don't have real-time payments. Now, here's what a recent article had to say about FedNow.
2: Accessibility is particularly important for this system because those most likely to suffer from the two- or three-day window, which commonly exists between when money is deposited or transferred into an account and when it is available for use, are low-income Americans living paycheck to paycheck and those on a fixed income. That's also important for small businesses where getting funds from a sale immediately can make the difference in being able to pay a supplier and avoiding costly long-term financing. The central bank is currently requesting comments on the design of the service which it expects to make available in 2023 or 2024.
1: So FedNow will be a good thing when they get around to it five years from now. And in five years, well... You better believe the digital yuan will be in daily use in China, and possibly well beyond. If you're a small Asian nation, why not use this amazing digital reserve currency on offer from the People's Bank of China, especially if the Chinese make it really easy to adopt? This is a deep topic. This is where economics and geopolitics intersect with monetary policy. So we're going to have a chat with an expert. Damien Jeffrey is a director of Sovereign, which is a startup that's specializing in digital currencies. Welcome, Damien. Thanks, Mark. Okay, so take me through this. Let's say that I am the prime minister or finance minister or head of the central bank in a small country, somewhere that maybe China or some other major power sees as a sphere of its influence. Why do I feel the need to maybe adopt a digital reserve currency that's being offered by
0: them? Well, there's a, there's a lot of advantages to to sharing a common currency. Uh, so that's been the experience in, in practice in the EU. Uh, and uh, it's also economic theory suggests that uh, countries that share common currencies uh, experience an increase in trade. Uh, and economic welfare as a result of that. So, if there is a if there is a regional power that's uh, offering you a, a, a usable uh, and well constructed currency, there are valid reasons for considering its use.
1: And why wouldn't I just do my own? Why wouldn't I just create my own and sort of? keep all of that for myself.
0: Well, I mean, and this has been one of the problems of the existing system to some extent. Uh, doing your own currency sort of cuts you off as much as it does create some, uh, something of value for you. So what we have in the world at the moment, we have um, you know uh, dozens and dozens, really, uh, best part of a 100 currencies that are uh, effectively cutting those countries off from their neighbors. Uh, if those countries were to find some way to share a currency between them, uh, they would be much better off. Okay, so, and,
1: and again, you can see the example from the EU, you can see the example from some, some currencies that, or some nations that adopt the dollar, so Zimbabwe or, uh, and not Costa Rica, but uh, I think Panama has done this as well, and um, is it Ecuador?
0: Ecuador, it's, yeah. They've done, just
1: because they've had <laughs> yeah. their own problems, yeah. and so they've, they've adopted, they've dollarized their economies, which is not digital, but they've, 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 they've dollarized their currencies. Okay, so we have this idea that you kind of need to have a certain size, whether it's an EU size or or yuan size, to do that. Now, if the People's Bank of China or if Facebook comes and says, hey, psst, we've got this great currency for you to use, and you're that central banker, and you go, okay, this looks good. Now, let's look that gift horse in the mouth. What are they really asking me to do?
0: There are critical aspects of sovereignty that are connected to your currency. So uh, we've seen this in the EU, uh, as as countries that, such as Greece sort of reassess their situation when times perhaps aren't as good, uh, and the options are, are more limited if your uh, if your currency is not controlled by your your uh, nation state. Um, so yeah, there's risks. There's certainly risks, and with uh, with the com- companies, uh, there's there's further risks. So uh, I know, for example, with uh, Libra, they're considering backing their currency on a basket of other currencies. Uh, now that's fine, uh, but um, who decides which currencies are in and which currencies are out, and what are the reasons for those things? If you're a nation state who's adopted uh, a libra or a similar currency as your as your national currency, you really mightn't have much say in in, uh, in the basket that underpins. Uh, liberal or whatever it is.
1: So you, in fact, might ha- might be picking your currency or the currency that you're using to nations that don't have your economic interests at heart. In fact, don't even notice your economic
0: interests. You could be a rounding error, yeah.
1: <laughs> so if you're a rounding error, you're basically completely ignored, then what you've done is you've taken your own ability to control monetary policy and states have the uh, right to be able to print, print money, money Yes, we'd... and also to charge interest or to... to to generate interest on funds that get held by banks overnight, right? We yep. call that the 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 prime rate in America. It's called the uh, cash rate. In cash Australia. rate in Australia. That's it, you know. So that, so the banks can store their money with the central
0: bank. Yeah, look, I think that some of those benefits of uh, monetary policy are, are perhaps overstated for small countries. Uh, the, the main challenge for very small countries and currencies is actually currency stability. So they face risks with their currencies becoming devalued or uh, you know, uh, getting out of their, their control and they have to expend significant resources to, to do that. If they can get around that, uh, then the price of not controlling your own monetary policy might be a price worth paying. All right. So you're actually... In doing a project
1: that's trying to actually square that circle with sovereign, could you tell us a little bit about
0: that? Sure. So sovereign looks to uh, create shared currencies between perhaps uh, you know smaller current uh, countries, uh, and by linking. Those uh, those countries together uh, allows them to share the benefits of uh, financial services across borders, removes friction, and then hopefully increases trade and that kind of thing.
1: So you could see something like that maybe being used across some of the Oceania countries, exactly. So some exactly. of the Pacific I mean, island nations.
0: Yeah, uh, the the sorts of places uh, that would benefit uh, there are some certainly some in Asia. Uh, we see some in South America, Central America. I mean, Venezuela. The cost of the bolivar to the Venezuelan people at this point is, uh, you know, perhaps a hundred billion dollars. It's hard to hard to say exactly, but uh, certainly they're bad government. They've had bad governance. But that that bad governance is uh, in part being facilitated by a, a currency that doesn't serve them well. So there's there's potential there, and also in Africa, which has uh, a lot of states with uh, with inflation problems.
1: So we're really talking about then a state making a decision to to share monetary policy using something like a sovereign to be able to do that.
0: Well. I think uh, there's probably been too much of a focus on the single currency for a single place for a while I mean historically that's not been the norm uh, so if you look back over time uh, it wasn't uncommon for uh, countries to, to, to share a you know a couple of currencies with mm. uh, with uh, they might have their domestic one and then have a you know the the, the local one of the region well,
1: certainly I know in the United States Spanish pieces of yeah. eight were used for a very long time because the Americans kind of didn't make dollars for a long
0: time yeah that's right Right. and 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 here in the early days of the Australian settlement, uh, we had we had similar uh, imported currencies, and uh, one of the innovations was when they punched the hole out of the centre and. And decreed that uh, it was now worth 1.5, I think, times as much. So, uh, you know, that's...
1: All right, so we do have this idea that nations can thrive with many different currencies. So is that where we're going? Are we going to see, whether it's in Australia or whether it's in Fiji or whether it's anywhere, that there will be multiple currencies in circulation?
0: Well, it's an interesting question, and certainly one that I'm, I'm sure is occupying the minds of central bankers are, are around the place. I, I think that there's probably not a bad thing to see a little bit more competition in currency, uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that uh, I think that multiple currencies could could bring that along. Uh, you know,
1: you, you mentioned that it's much on the mind of central bankers, and we just saw Mark Carney at the Jackson Hole conference talk about the fact that, in fact, the Big powers actually need to now develop their own digital reserve currency. It kind of sounded like it was only going to be used between the central banks to settle accounts between them. But is it, it seemed rather radical. It really caught people by surprise. But are we seeing this as maybe just a natural evolution of where monetary policy has gone over the last few years?
0: Yeah, I think uh, we're, not, we're it's probably... Some sort of important uh, of the future that you know digital currencies are going to, to feature more, uh, more strongly, uh, and they will be uh, likely adopted by you know the likes of central banks and so on. So I mean, the underlying those currencies though is still the the promise of the government, so the the, the fiat promise, and I think uh, you know that that's sort of a, a very different proposition to the the Bitcoin, uh, where there is just a, that that's not present.
1: So if we want to take this forward a couple of years, you know we will clearly see the Chinese in about five years' time with their digital yuan. It will be out there. People will be using it. They will be migrating people away from paper currencies. Mm -hmm. We may or may not see Libra, but we'll probably see some commercial version of a currency that's similar to that digital yuan that's being used as a global reserve currency for individuals. Is this a winner-take-all proposition when it comes to a digital currency? Or is it, like you say, where there's going to be several currencies in use for several different reasons, where we'll see actually a melange of different currencies?
0: Yeah, I I, I can't see a a winner-take-all in in this one. Uh, These matters are are going to be absolutely top of mind for governments and central banks. And the idea of, uh, you know, a a single foreign uh, corporation-controlled currency coming in and taking over, I think is an absolute anathema to them. And, And... For good reason, frankly.
1: So then I guess when we start to see the the money wars, as we're calling it, it's really not just a story of nations fighting it out about which currency is going to be dominant or commercial organizations. But it's in fact got a lot of different players where you have governments, you have central bankers, you have economists, you have commercial organizations – all sort of jockeying and having a say in what the next form of money is.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think the idea of uh, the, the Libra idea is certainly an interesting one, uh, and it's you know, one that we've done a bit of work on as well, in terms of having uh, you know a, an extra layer on top of the fiat layer that sort of uh, through that basketing effect uh, creates a, another layer of abstraction. Um yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of interesting developments over, over the coming years. So it's hard to say how it's going to turn out. So, I mean, if
1: as, as you've done a lot of thinking on this, what is the clearest on-ramp that you can see for some of these smaller countries? I mean, we know what the Chinese are going because they're going all in. We understand why. But what about these smaller countries? What's their on-ramp? How did they decide to, that this is the right time and the right place? What What's going through their minds?
0: Well, I, I think, you know, from... From our experience, they're they're very conservative and and that's a a good thing in in these spaces. Uh, So I think they'll be looking very much to to see where the the larger players are headed uh, and following their lead to a a certain extent. So uh, they might be offered inducements, who knows what goes on, but uh, I think at this stage they they would be looking uh, to stay a very steady course.
1: Right. I mean, because you take a look at a country like Indonesia, again, huge economy, right? Mm. Quarter billion people, but also a place where the internet and the Facebook are the same thing, right? People think Facebook is the internet in mm. Indonesia. And so is the is it possible that Facebook could introduce a Libra and it just being adopted by Indonesians irrespective of whatever the Indonesian Central Bank
0: wants? I think governments have a lot of levers they can pull, a lot of levers. And and I don't think that this is something where firms should be looking to, to come in over the top mm-hmm. and do things against, uh, and try and do things against the wishes of uh, the local governments or, you know, access to Facebook is, it could be cut off or restricted or, or whatever.
1: All right, and we're also now seeing, alternatively, the Indians have been passing a very strict series of laws about cryptocurrencies. They're, they're, they're definitely saying that they may want to do it a digital rupee, but it's got to come from the Indian government. So, is this perhaps the next place we're going to, or we're going to see large trading nations develop their own digital currencies?
0: Well, I think we've certainly seen quite a bit of evidence of that over the recent times. And, uh, you know, n- although the the initial launches are, are still still coming, except for, you know, some with the Petro and so on, uh, uh, the... They will be there and I think they're, they all want to be ready to be there in case somebody else launches and then they'll have theirs ready to go as well. So they don't want to lose out to by a situation where a, another central bank will offer something that's more flexible and, and easy to use within their jurisdiction. They want to be able to, to meet that on a competition basis.
1: So it, we really... I mean, it's not so much money wars as it's a money arms race now.
0: It almost is. You know, <laughs> it's not a bad way of putting it. its uh, I think it's going to be ultimately good for consumers and good for the, the non-banked. One of the things that we've found is that... Uh, there's a huge amount of uh, good that can be done for the developing world through uh, improvements to currencies. Uh, they are a major barrier to trade investment and, uh, and gen- general development in those in those countries. And I think that uh, if we can get this right this time around, I mean, at the moment, we're, we're based on the remnants of the Bretton Woods system. That's not a great way to design things. Uh, and if we get it right, I think there will be it will be good for everybody.
1: Damien, thank you for joining us on Cryptonomics. You're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> We find ourselves in an interesting moment in time. There's a huge pent-up global demand from billions of users, banked and unbanked, for digital reserve currency. Now, if one were available today, we'd probably already all be using it at least some of the time for some of our payments. Facebook has come along with a commercial solution with all of the questions that implies and all of the trade-offs that demands. So has the People's Bank of China, with a state solution, with more questions and even more trade-offs. And as always, Mark Jeffrey has something insightful to say about our current predicament. This is like watching the taxi industry try to respond to Uber. The attempts are somewhere between comical and sad. The Federal Reserve has never been forced to innovate and compete. They have absolutely no idea how to do it. The U.S. Federal Reserve are AWOL. They won't even get a real time payment solution released until 2023 or 2024. Now, for a central banker, that is light speed. But the Fed and the rest of us, we are stuck between Zuck and a hard place. Because it's going to happen. There will be a digital reserve currency. But whose? Let's go back to our last episode and Rob Tercic's prediction about Libra and its consequences.
0: My perspective is it will launch, and I think that there'll be many other digital currencies that follow in its wake, and you'll see intense competition. And what that competition will do is force innovation, and it'll also reveal just how slow traditional governments operate and how ill-equipped they are to deal with the pace of digital change. And we're going to start to see this, I think, as one of the first major blows against traditional democratic governments caused by digital disruption. Really, what we're looking at is a smash and grab against governance.
1: It took less than a month between Rob making that prediction and that prediction coming true. The times are moving fast. Too fast for sensible decisions on serious matters. Fast enough that we might break some things. And let's hope that one of those things won't be the global economy. A casualty of these money wars brings us to a close on Series 2 of cryptonomics. We started with Facebook's Libra white paper and then got drawn headlong into a world where global digital reserve currencies are no longer just a crazy idea floated by a crypto libertarian. It's an assumed fact of the near future by the largest authoritarian state on the planet. You can't make this stuff up, and it proves beyond all doubt that the future of money is inextricably bound to cryptocurrency and the future of economics looks more and more like cryptonomics. I'm sure we'll be back next year with a Series 3, but what the world of money and payments and cryptocurrencies will look like in a year's time, I'm just not sure anybody knows. We've jumped the rails, we're off the chain, and where we're headed, no one can say. Big thanks to Damian Jeffrey for coming on our show. If you want to learn more about Bretton Woods or M-Pacer or Binance Venus or the People's Bank of China's Digital Yuan or Damian Jeffrey's Sovereign, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, search The Next Billion Seconds, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.